Hey, this is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Cortland Allen. He is the founder of Indie Hackers, which is now part of Stripe. And for those of you who don't know it, Indie Hackers is a place where the founders of profitable businesses and side projects go to share their stories. Cortland also hosts the Indie Hackers podcast, and you can check that out at IndieHackers.com slash podcast. Two quick announcements before we get going. The first of which is YC is on a fall tour right now, and all the locations and dates are at blog.ycombinator.com. And the second is YC applications for the 2018 batch are open. And that link is ycombinator.com slash apply. All right, here we go. But yeah, why did you decide to start doing a podcast after the site was going? People were asking for it. It seemed, <laughs> it seemed like a good idea. I mean, the number of people who asked me to do a podcast was so much higher than people who asked for any other feature. Uh, and also, I think, you know, part of the text interviews was that you have to share your revenue. So everyone is completely transparent. And the number of people that I reached out to who I thought would have really good stories for the site that people can learn from who were willing to share everything but their revenue was like pretty high. And so I kept tired, getting tired of people saying, you know, I'm not going to come on. If I have to share my revenue, you need some other way where I can come on and share my story. So the podcast kind of, you know, helped me kill that bird. And also, you know, it, it appeased people who wanted me to do a podcast. But I was, I was terrified of it because, like I said earlier, like I don't. I'd never done a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> was it? Were there people you admired at the time? You're like, oh, I want to make a podcast like X, Y, No, not Z. at all. Like, oh. I barely listened to podcasts. You like, weren't even in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I was just like, you know what? I'll try this. Uh, <laughs> I had a very like lazy approach to it. Like, I'm not going to do a ton of research. I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm just going to try talking to people and see how it comes out and have my own style. I think it's worked out. I've gotten better over time. Yeah. Well, what are, your, what are the skills you've developed, you think? I think I've gotten a lot better at preparing efficiently. Uh, I've, I Meaning what, like reading their... All yeah, their like knowing what to content. read and what to listen to, what kinds of questions to ask that'll be uh, engaging and that they'll give good answers to, and how to follow up on a question if you get an unexpected answer. So I'm kind of a control freak. I'm like, okay, here's exactly, at least in the beginning, you know, I'm going to ask question A, B, C, D, E, F, and this is how it's going to go. And like, you know, you ask a question, they start giving you answers all over the map, and suddenly your perfect plan is thrown into disarray. So I think uh, just... Like having the composure and the ability to calm down and be like, okay, it's okay. Like, just listen to what they're saying and have a normal conversation was difficult yeah. at first. Uh, other things, like I don't know if you would call this a skill, but just being comfortable, like in my own skin, like not uh, not cringing at the sound of my own voice because <laughs> you edit your own. <laughs> yeah, podcast. I edit my own podcast. But like, I mean, I would go back and listen, and it's like I don't know, like if you hate the sound no, of your I voice, but feeling. I hated the sound of my voice at first. <laughs> now I'm fine with it. But at first, I was like, man, I sound awful. Like who's gonna listen to me? Uh, now it's not a problem yeah you can only spend so much of your time cringing at yourself after you're like oh god i mean like the amount of hours i've seen myself on video and listened to myself on a podcast whatever it's fine like yeah that is one of the things that i i thought the fear would remain and it completely goes away um maybe to a fault where you (laughs) don't care (laughs) um but yeah the the video element has thrown a few people what um what was your favorite episode i haven't listened to all of them yet it's hard to say a favorite episode because i'm always like i'm gonna hurt somebody's feelings okay Uh, and then i forget too you know like what what happened in that episode but some of the coolest ones i did one with my friend julian shapiro who's got a growth consultancy called bell curve and he just like deep dived into like a bunch of different kind of stories of him working with different clients mm-hmm. and he was not afraid to share like times where he just messed up so i thought that was really cool mm. uh i really liked the episode i did last week with west boss who's that was this, a good one yeah he's a great guy i mean he's uh gets an enormous amount of work done to be just a one person he's got an email that's like one hundred and seventy thousand developers on it that he's built by himself in like five or six years uh twitter following of like a hundred thousand people and he's just trucking along he works nine to five puts his laptop down, and then goes to hang out with his wife and his kids. So uh, he's got it together. That's really... <laughs> is it, I, I, I wondered about that. Like, is there a, a list of people that you admire? You're like, man, that that person has it figured out. Like, I want to do <laughs> do exactly what they're doing. Yeah, there's a lot of people, and it's, it's like, I always forget. I'm like, man, that person's got it figured out, and the next week I've totally forgotten about it. I've just moved on <laughs> to other things. And yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, West Boss guy. Your life's pretty good. Yeah, it's it's okay. Um, I... I've seen a handful of like roundups of indie hacker pro tips from every episode. Uh, are you continuously integrating their great ideas into your daily life or do you kind of just go your own way? Yeah, I think uh, it's funny. It's one of the things I was telling a friend a couple of days ago. I think 
generally speaking, like all of us tend to overweight like novel advice, like things that are new or flashy or we haven't heard before. And we tend, it's like so easy to ignore the things that we hear all the time, you know, like, oh, make something people want or talk to your customers. Like, <laughs> exercise. Oh, yeah, yeah, exercise, <laughs> you know, take some time off. Like, oh, I've heard that before. I get it. Yeah. But I try to have the discipline to when I see that kind of repeated advice to take it to heart and not look at it as, as something that, okay, you know, have I heard this before? Yes, it doesn't matter, but more of, you know, as a reminder to myself, like, am I actually living by this? You know, I, I've internalized this, or I like to think I have, but like, am I actually talking to my customers? Am I actually taking time off? Am I actually exercising? And the answer a lot of the times is no. So I think when people do like these roundups and people analyze things and I, I see this advice repeated, I, I take the time to ask myself if I'm doing it. Uh, and, you know, I think I've, I've gotten better at it. Just repeated reminders to myself. Yeah, I think you become conscious of it. But I agree. I don't need 12 new morning routines in my <laughs> life. <laughs> uh, all right. So we, uh, we posted a bunch of questions or other people posted questions to Twitter for you. Uh, you have a lot of fans online. Um, Ryan Hoover, Product Hunt, yeah. asked, uh, what do you believe that most others do not? It's a tricky prepared question. prepared this one. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I got this question on Twitter rather than just being asked uh, randomly because it's, it's hard to answer unless you've thought about it. Yeah. Okay. Kind of a funny story. So I think this question originally comes from Peter Thiel, who would ask the founders of companies that he was interested in investing in, just as a way to find out if like what they're doing is truly unique and whether they'd be able to have like a monopoly and very few competitors. And that's why he liked it. I liked it when I heard it because it's kind of a sneaky way to get somebody to say something controversial. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. So when I was in YC five years ago, I asked Paul Graham. I was like, I think you know, 2011. I was like, Hey, PG, you know, what do you believe? I think I asked, like, what do you believe that other smart people don't? Uh, and it took him a long time to answer. He was just hmm. like, I don't know. My thoughts, they're not indexed that way. Uh, but then he ended up coming up with an answer and it worked. It was controversial. Like, I don't think anybody would, <laughs> very many people would agree. Okay. Uh, I can't say what it was because okay. I respect for him. I don't mean to be a tease, but, uh, luckily I've had some time to think about it. So, uh, probably the most obvious one is I, I think that it's probably a bad bet to start a VC funded company for the vast majority of people. You should not go that route. But there's other things that I believe too. I think that, uh, and the value of kind of this culture of, of always talking about like, you know, what mission drives you. And we, we kind of are not honest about the fact that a lot of us are motivated by money and financial things. Uh, I think it's probably better for the world if people can just be upfront and honest about that. I think I got a few others, but like, let's start with those two. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think, um, you're, or everyone's ability to rationalize is unbelievably powerful. Yeah. And you can be into anything. And if you're good at it, like just being good at the game is often enough to drive people. So you see like folks criticizing, you know, anyone who works in anything and they're like, Oh, why do they care about this? Why do they do that? And I'm like, it's because they're really good at it. Yeah. Into it. <laughs> it's fun um, to do things that you're good at. It you know, stimulates your brain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, w was there a point at which that you, you kind of turned on the interest in VC backed companies. Uh, did something happen? Um, it was before I even got into YC. Funnily enough, I went to startup school, 2009 and Jason Fried was there from 37 signals. They called it at the time. And he was like, he stood out like a sore thumb. He was completely different than everybody else who talked. Everybody else was kind of a VC or they were a founder of a VC backed company. And he got on stage and, and basically said, everybody else is lying to you. <laughs> Don't believe a word they say. Credit to YC for inviting like a, you know, like yeah. the opposite opinion there. But uh, I was very taken by what he had to say because no one else was saying it at the time. Uh, it didn't really change my approach at that time. But then I got into YC and we had the weekly you know, Tuesday dinners where founders would come in. Mm -hmm. The same thing happened. We had a lot of VCs come in. We had a lot of founders of well-funded companies come in. And then Kevin Hale came in from Wufu. And he was like the only person. He was kind of an indie hacker at the time. And he was just like, yeah, I packed up my company. We moved to Florida. Investors call us every day. We just, you know, politely say no. And we're just happy making money. You know, they're making millions of dollars a year. And I was intrigued by that. Like, huh. Hmm. You know, but it wasn't until like recently, like uh, basically last year, where I really decided that's what I wanted to do for myself. Yeah. That I wasn't really, uh, you know, in the mood or really inclined to, to do the whole fundraising thing. And I'd rather just make money from an idea online that I enjoyed doing. And that idea, was that Indie Hackers or yeah. was that, okay. So, I mean, the company that I did YC with, Task Force, still exists. It's still out there. It still actually makes money uh, passively. I kind of worked on that for a little bit, but I didn't think it was really going to go anywhere. I wasn't enthused about the idea. And so I sat around for like a couple days thinking, okay, what am I going to work on? And, uh, 
PG wrote must about have been this. two days. Yeah. <laughs> it was like three solid days. Okay. PG wrote about this like 12 years ago or something. But uh, a lot of people, when they come to the idea phase, they think that it's something that you naturally have to be good at. You know, you just get a good idea or you don't, right? Whereas, like, the reality is it's like any other creative endeavor. If you practice for long enough, you will create a good idea. You know, you don't try to, like, paint the Mona Lisa in, like, 15 minutes. And if you don't get it, you give up. So I was like, all right, I'm going to push through this. I'm going to spend, like, two days coming up with ideas. Most of them are absolutely horrible. Mm. You know, I just deleted them immediately. But by the end of two days, I realized I was consistently coming up with like much better ideas than I had before. And I was just reading through Hacker News threads. Because hmm. people would ask like every month, you know, ask HN, what's your profitable side project? Or ask HN, how much money are you making from your, you know, your business? And people would share all the details. So I figured, okay, there's like hundreds of stories here. If I read through enough of them, maybe I'll glean some insights. I'll see some patterns that I can apply and it'll help me come up with an idea. Mm-hmm. And that's literally exactly what happened. I mean, the idea for Andy Hackers was based off of the realization that, hey, I'm not the only person who's researching all this stuff. The reason these threads are so popular is because everybody else is really interested. Mm. I could probably do a better version of, hmm. of these threads. And that's what Andy Hackers is. And I was wondering, is it because the... Um because there's there's been a rise in the popularity of indie hackers, right? But I think there's also a rise in, in just the number of those threads all over the internet. Yeah. Is that because more people are now thinking about, you know, small businesses or just non-VC-backed businesses? Or there's more people in the software development space right now? I think it, probably a combination. So I read the book Sapiens earlier this year. And, like, my takeaway from... It's kind of a history of all of humanity from, like, the beginning of evolution. And my takeaway from Sapiens was that human societies tell stories. And it's tricky because it's difficult to determine uh, whether or not something you believe is just like an arbitrary story that your society happens to tell or if it's like some immutable fact of the universe. And for the longest time, like the story around tech companies has been that like if you start a tech company, you have to raise a lot of money and prioritize growth over funding. And, you know, that's the story. And Mm. so it's amazing how much everyone just believes that and doesn't even consider the possibility that you can start you know a, a profitable company that doesn't have to be that big and you don't need any sort of investors or gatekeepers to tell you what to do uh, i think the story started to change a lot and once people hear this alternative version of the story and once they see examples of it people will kind of like wake up out of this zombie like state and they're like oh i guess i can do that you know they've sort of been given permission but there are other practical factors and reasons why the story has changed uh a good one is if i look at the indie hackers traffic stats something like 60 percent of the traffic is from not the United States, let alone Silicon Valley. Hmm. People are all over the world starting these companies. And it just from a practical standpoint, like, it's hard to raise money if you live in like Bucharest. Yeah. You know, it's difficult. You don't live in Silicon Valley. You don't have access to investors. And so your options are uh, either you suck it up and try to raise money locally, mm-hmm. you move to a tech hub and raise money there, or you just prioritize profitability, which is like kind of the easiest of those three options. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a lot of just natural pressure uh, as, as more people over the world get interested in tech to start profitable businesses and to care less about growth overall else. Hmm. And have you seen that there's there's a common trend in folks just getting started, like starting similar kinds of software businesses? Yeah, uh, for yeah. sure. I mean, the other thing is like if you look at the companies that VCs tend to invest in, they're generally in winner-take-all markets. Yeah. Because venture capitalists want some massive return. You really want to be number one. You want to, you know, destroy the competition. So it's social things like Facebook or search, you know, applications like Google versus things that are profitable. Like, you don't want to be in a winner-take-all market, right? You don't want to be <laughs> fighting for your life every second of the day. And you don't want to be, you know, in a zero-sum game where everyone else has to lose for you to win. And so people end up starting businesses that are very related. Like, how many profitable analytics companies do you know like email marketing companies there's a ton Mm -hmm. you know how many different ways are there to teach somebody something i tell people all the time if you want to start a business just teach people people like learning in like a thousand different (laughs) ways right some people want to go to college some people want to like you know classroom settings some people want to read some people want video courses some people want an email newsletter some people want to learn through games right like there's no reason why you have to you know right completely differentiate from everyone else in the market you can do something that's similar and people will like your own unique style so People for sure start related hmm. businesses. And I think it's a good thing because then it it kind of fosters a sense of camaraderie. You don't have to compete with everybody. You don't have to be mistrustful of everybody. Uh, and you can get advice from people who are similar and doing things that kind of tread that path before you. Well, I've been wondering that with all the guests you get, you know, because they're divulging most of their information, yeah. right? Like usually like how much money they're making, all these kind of metrics. Mm-hmm. Are they worried about copycats or is this something that now that you have some traction, they kind of like know the deal and it's easier to get people? Yeah. I mean, people 
that I've talked to are generally not that worried. I've had some people who refuse to come on because they say, what's the benefit of me revealing my secrets? You know, someone's <laughs> going to copy me. Yeah. And then I've had people who reveal their secrets that have actually been copied. And it's always hilarious because if you think about, <laughs> if you think about the kind of person out there who's going to like, just listen to your podcast and read your interview. And yeah. he's just waiting for someone to reveal all the details. And then they clone everything that you've done and like make some like crappy version of your website, but that's, you know, n- different in no way at all, except that it's two years later. That's not the most competent person <laughs> that you should be afraid of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think generally it's, it's a non-issue, uh, especially if you're not in some sort of winner take all market. Mm, okay. Even more questions from Twitter. Uh, there is a uh, David Adamu asked this question to both you and Ryan, uh, which is part of the YC application. It is, uh, tell us about a time you successfully hacked a non-computer system to your advantage. Yeah. So I do remember doing this on the YC application. My answer now, I think it would be more interesting if I related it to ND hackers, but early on in ND hackers history, I was kind of running myself ragged. I thought that, uh, I mean, I really wanted to put out a lot of content. I wanted to do three or four or five early on interviews per week. And these are not small interviews. So like sometimes a thousand, two thousand words. Uh, sometimes they're very poorly written. I have to edit and I have to follow up with the person. So they took hours and hours. And Plus, you did this solo? Yeah, I did it solo. And then I was sending a newsletter and then I was trying to grow the business as well. And so my trick early on was like, I'm just going to work 80 hours a week. <laughs> it was not much of a trick. Yeah. But eventually I realized like, okay, this is not going to work. You know, it's okay to do things that don't scale, but you have, you can't do that forever. Right? You need to figure out a way to make it work. And so what I wanted to do was, you know, increase or at least maintain the level, like the quantity of content that I was putting out without having a drop in quality. And so I wanted to like, you know, the ultimate would be to have some sort of interview system that like worked for everyone. It was generally applicable and yet still got interesting answers and didn't take me very long mm-hmm. to do. Uh, and the answer that I hit on, I kind of stumbled into it. I just started doing it naturally and it ended up working out was every time I would do a text-based interview, and I did these interviews over email, I would ask pretty much the same questions, and then I would look at the responses and ask follow-up questions. And then I would take a note, okay, why did I have to ask that follow-up question? What did they leave out? They probably should have included. Uh, you know, How could their answer have been better? Like, Why did I go to them with giving a better answer? And after a few months of like interviewing companies from all sorts of different industries and verticals, I had a gigantic list of ways that people commonly gave uninteresting interviews. And so I just factored that into my interview questions. So I would have like a question followed by like 10 or 11 bullet points for like, here's how you should answer, or here's what you should avoid in your answer. Here are things that people like listening to. Uh, and so I started sending that to people and, you know, instantly the interviews that I got back were much more entertaining and they were required less effort because I can send the same packet of questions to everybody. Hmm. So it's kind of a, you know, I guess it qualifies as a hack where I no longer have to do as much work. And I can, but they're handwriting, they're, well, they're typing these yeah, answers. they're in. typing the answers to me over email and every now and then I'll send a follow-up question, but uh, it was not, it was optimized to be as little work as possible on my part so that I could do other things like start the podcast. I was selling ads at the time. That took up like half of my time. Yeah. Et cetera. Hmm. Yeah, because I found that the... um the best hack for me, we did a bunch of interviews with the first employees at uh, tech companies. And the thing that worked was just doing audio interviews, transcribing them, and then doing like insane amounts of editing. Because <laughs> I found that there were there were just issues that um, you, you have trouble going back and forth to get deeper and deeper and deeper. Maybe you figured this out through repetition. But um, giving someone one chance at an answer and then they like painstakingly like write the perfect answer, oftentimes it comes out kind of flat. Yeah, it doesn't work very well. No. Uh, It didn't work for me early on, which is why I had to do crazy amounts of follow-up emails. And I was just resistant to doing the call. Like I didn't want to get on the phone with people. That's why I was so scared to do a podcast. I was like, I want to talk to people. You know, I just like the whole programmer behind the computer, type on my keyboard and that's it. Yeah. But it, it worked out. I mean, now we're doing, I think... When we launched Indie Hackers last, last, or when I launched it last August, it was like 10 interviews. And it took me three weeks. I sent hundreds of emails yeah. uh, to get 10 people to agree to do an interview. And one of them was me, so it was really only nine people. And now we've got like 200, I think we just hit 200 this week, interviews, 30 podcast episodes. Yeah. And I'm working you know, on that part of the business less than I ever had. So. so what are the other parts you're working on? I'm working on the community right now. Okay. Uh, so Indie Hackers really... It started off as a content site, really a showcase for these types of profitable internet businesses. But today, it's I would describe it more as a community of founders and aspiring entrepreneurs who are like sharing knowledge with each other and mm-hmm. helping each other to build successful businesses. So the real core of the site is the community forum. It's just a bunch of people asking each other practical questions. You know, mm-hmm. How do I market my site? What do you think about my landing page? Should I change this? What do you think about my idea? You know, how do you people find? You know, time to work on your projects when you have a family or a full time job, et cetera, and just helping each other out. 
Uh, that takes a lot of time to, to grow. And I'm thinking about building like kind of harnessing the power of the community to build tools that help these makers and these indie hackers to actually do better. Like, hmm. You know, what can, what can they all work together on to, to know, make their lives easier? So it could be something as simple as, you know, maybe a crowdsource list of like the best podcast episodes for this month, mm. just cause you know, I don't want to dig through all the podcast episodes to find out what's <laughs> worth listening to. Right. I yeah. want these other people to tell me or, or all sorts of tools like that, I think would be interesting for this community. So I'm spending almost all my time coding and talking to people and trying to figure out what to do there. Whereas my brother who was brought on as part of the Stripe acquisition is handling like almost all of the editing for the interviews uh, and coordinating with interviewees and handling like the articles and finding people to write for indie hackers. So. Uh, okay. So that now is just like growth tactics, yeah. right? To get people into the forum. Yep. Exactly. Okay. And it's, it's kind of automatic. I mean, I'm not doing very many tactical things. Like things yeah. get submitted to Hacker News. I think that's probably our number one growth channel. People on Hacker News reading the interviews, which is how the site got launched. So it's not, you know, particularly nothing has changed very much in the last year. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's more about like product. Like what's the right decision? Like what's worth building? And what's not? And it's a tricky decision because uh, obviously, you know, as a one or two person team, building something is a humongous investment and you don't want to spend three months building the wrong thing. Mm. We have a, a handful of people coming up. Um, one guy runs a site called Bigger Pockets, which uh -huh. I don't Have you seen this before? No. It's basically like a giant real estate forum. And they've created uh, tons of educational content. And I think they also have like a bunch of... Uh, I might be mistaken this, but a bunch of like calculators and stuff. Uh -huh. So basically these tools that folks who are interested in real estate investing need. Yeah. And, and they've like figured it out. Like after someone asks the same question 400 times in the forum, <laughs> you're like, oh, maybe there's some amount of interest here. Exactly. Um, I think that's a cool model too. Like when I was scouring Hacker News trying to come up with an idea, uh, the company that I saw that inspired me the most and actually, the first person that I reached out to for an interview afterwards was a company called Nomad List, mm -hmm. started by this guy Peter Levels, who's always on HN. He's like a you know, crazy personality on Twitter as well. But what he did was basically built a resource for digital nomads. It was basically a list of all the different cities in the world that you might want to travel to, and then just common stats that you would like to research, like how fast is the internet, how safe is it, you know, how expensive is it. Uh, and so people who are digital nomads were like, of course, like they want to do this research. They're going to go to this site rather than scouring the web. And once he got them all in one place, he built a community and he started building tools for that community that are just for digital nomads like himself. Yeah. I think that's a pretty cool model. It sounds like this you know, real estate site is the same. Indie hackers same is deal. very similar. Yeah. And so, cause that was, um, a handful of people on Twitter asked this question. So, you know, Tom, for instance, uh, you know, and Pratik, um, I'm getting their name wrong. Basically, how do you how do you grow a forum? Is yeah. the question right? Like, had you built a forum before? You no. no idea. I had no idea. Uh, I just kind of winged it. I knew yeah. I wanted to have a forum. So the day that I launched Indie Hackers, I had a link on the site that said forum, but the forum wasn't built yet, and <laughs> <laughs> it just had like a sign up list. You know, a sign so up it would just go to like a Mailchimp list or something. Yeah, I would just go to my Mailchimp list, and I wanted to see okay, how many people sign up from the mailing list on this page. It's some sort of rough indicator of whether or not people want there to be a forum or a community, which I wasn't sure of. You know, you could people are already talking on Reddit. They're already talking in Hacker News. Like maybe this is a big question for a lot of people. They're like, why would I build a forum when I could get discussion? You know, even with like a, my own Facebook group, mm -hmm. like what motivated you to, to do it? Just yeah. I did a lot of things early on that I think were a lot of people found unintuitive. They yeah. They're like, why would you do that? You know, why are you building your own website rather than using WordPress? Or why didn't you just use a medium blog? You know, yeah. why is Indie Hackers, like, you know, this dark blue website? It looks ridiculous. <laughs> you know, why would you do this? Why are you building your own forum? Why don't you use Discourse? And why don't you just use Facebook? And my thinking from the very beginning was like, your product, whatever you do, you should probably take, if you're going to be invested in it for a number of years, you should take the time to make it stand out and be different and be yours. And I knew going into it also that like, I'm a computer programmer. The other ideas on my list before I chose Indie Hackers were all like kind of SaaS businesses that mm -hmm. involved a lot more development. And I begrudgingly chose the idea that was a blog. Indie Hackers is a blog. So I was like, okay, if I'm a programmer and I really want to do these other things, but I'm going to do a blog, I'm going to allow myself to like do some fun stuff and make some stuff to keep myself interested. And I also thought about what I didn't like about blogs. And you know, the worst thing about blogs is when you go to something and you, a blog and you read something good on it and then you come back a month later and you don't even remember that you were there. Yeah. There's no way you're going to go to Indie Hackers and not remember that you've already been there because it's this quirky, dark blue website that looks like nothing else on the internet. Mm -hmm. you, know, you might as well stand out. So I decided early on that I didn't want to do you know, the standard thing that other people were doing. I didn't want to you know, use Facebook for my community groups. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do it all in-house and do it myself. Hmm. And so if someone were to start a community, uh -huh. like, what would be your advice on getting a forum going? 
Okay, so number one, I think you need to organize your form around a topic that people can actually talk about and they actually enjoy talking about. Uh, it seems obvious, but people do it all the time where they, they, they start a community, I think, around something that people don't really like talking about and then they wonder why it's empty. Like what? Uh, like just like one-off things. Like, okay, uh, let's start a community about, I don't know, like something super specific. Like how do I, how do I incorporate? Mm, okay, well, mm-hmm. you can't really have a community around how do you incorporate because people <laughs> ask that like question. It's answer. answered and they're out, right? So not only do people need to enjoy talking about it, but they need to actually... It needs to be substantive enough that they can come back and continue talking about it. Yeah. Starting a business obviously qualifies because there's endless challenges. Right. Number two, I think you need to have some sort of strategy to continually drive traffic to it. It can't be you launch your community on Product Hunt and then after that you've got no strategy. And this applies to any product, not just a form. Mm-hmm. With ND Hackers, if you, were, if you were to think about the form as like the core product of ND Hackers mm-hmm. and the interviews as, as content marketing, I think that'd be a good model for how it works. So I'm constantly doing these interviews every week. The interviews themselves are really entertaining. Uh, proved early on that people on Hacker News and Reddit and other websites and Twitter uh, enjoyed sharing them. So I could do the interviews, you know, get people on my mailing list and then send out links to the community on my mailing list and continually drive traffic and kind of kickstart it over and over and over and over again for weeks. Mm. So if, you, if you're starting a community from scratch and you don't have any way to consistently drive traffic to it you're at a tremendous disadvantage and you're going to be sort of just having to pedal faster every single time you want to get you know more traffic i didn't have to do that it was easier because i I started with my content marketing strategy first yeah and i think finally uh, you got to ensure that there's good content and discussions going on early on like i you know the first week created a bunch of fake accounts which i had heard other people doing i was like all right this seems cheesy but you know i'll try it and i would have conversations with myself yeah. I would have conversations with other people. I never let anyone make a thread that I didn't respond to and try to give them like a valuable response because otherwise they're not going to come back. Like, yeah. No one wants to see an empty forum. No. Uh, it helps to think up interesting discussion topics, et cetera. So as long as people like talking about what you're doing, as long as you have a way to drive traffic there consistently, and as long as you ensure that you know, the conversations there are interesting, I think over time the forum that you start will grow. So to kind of boil it down, there were no crazy growth like hack type things. It's just you figured out a market where people are interested in reading a bunch of content about mm-hmm. and made a bunch of content. Yeah, and then they just ended up on your site and following you and all. all exactly, that. and and like the idea of like the crazy growth hack is so overrated. You know, yeah. like I mean, even when I when I sometimes do an indie hackers interview, people who read it, like on Hacker News, will say, oh, you know, just boil it down to this one trick that this person did. And it's like, that's never the case. You know, I think we all want it to always be like, oh, was this one thing that they did that's responsible? But it's, it's not. It's almost always just like they got the basics right. They made something that people actually wanted, right. which is like deceptively simple advice. You know, it sounds simple, but people always subtly do other things that aren't making something that people want and wonder why no one uses their product. Uh, and So the tricks, I think, are overrated. Make sure that you've built something that people want that's good. Uh, and then make sure that you're actually thinking about how to get people in the door. You're not obsessed with the product itself. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the, I mean, people call it what, like leaky bucket, all this stuff. Um, it's continually a piece of advice that when we're talking about like content or content marketing with any YC startup, it's like, make something that you're going to want to read. Right. You know, doing these like listicles that no one really cares about <laughs> and your site looks like medium. So no one remembers what yeah. it is. Like, it's kind of just wasting time. Yeah, I know. It's, I did the same thing too with my YC company. We just slapped a blog on our website. It was so boring. We yeah. would like announce new features every now and then totally. and then it would be empty for like six months. Whereas I think some of the most interesting content online is, it's it's treated as if it is the product, right? Andy Hacker is the content was like the only thing on the site for months. Yeah, you know, uh, I think you need to put that level of detail and thought into it, and you know, like we were just talking about, be creative too. Like content doesn't even have to necessarily look like content. Like the content on Nomad List was like a database of cities with information about them. Right, that's not like traditional content, but it's interesting. Yeah, how many um, how many interviews do you cut? Text interviews or podcast? Uh, well, I mean, the answer is zero, is it's, actually. Oh, zero? They all go? Yeah. They all go to print or publish or whatever? I don't think I've ever conducted a text interview that I didn't end up putting up. You know, there might have been like one or two where someone was just complete jokester yeah. and they gave like one sentence responses and I was like, I sent it back to them and they just never responded. But I, I mean, that wasn't me cutting it. That was them never responding. I think, okay. uh, I think a good interview, you could really coax it out of anybody if you're willing to like put in the time and the effort. Well, so that's the, the text thing is what, uh, kind of strikes me Mm -hmm. because in person you just like, you get the vibe and you're like, okay, they're going to be a little bit difficult, but you Mm -hmm. kind of like warm up the room and they're, they're good. Um, when someone's not responsive over email or not, 
I don't know, not as specific or not as interesting as you think they could be. How do you get better answers out of them? Follow up endlessly until they either quit or they give you a good answer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what we also do sometimes is we'll put their their interview on the site as a draft, which is inline comments. Like, oh, this is a really interesting answer. Like, care to give us some details besides what you gave us? Or like, it would be awesome if you added like a chart or a graph here in your interview. Uh, So I think, you know, from the outside looking in, maybe it looks like people are magically just giving good answers, but sometimes you just have to coax them. And like you said, like in person, you do that by filling out the room and just like, you know, vibing off the other person. Over text, you just take the tedious time to point out what's wrong and how it can be better. Okay, fair enough. Uh, All right, so question from Tom. What was the hard, uh, sorry, I mean, the question is what was the hardest with Indie Hackers? But I think what he means is uh, what was the hardest thing about building Indie Hackers? Managing my time early on, but I I already kind of talked about that. Uh, what else was difficult building into hackers? I think doing it alone is difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm super lucky because the site itself in like a very meta way is about building startups. It's about yeah. starting companies. Uh, and the way that I look at it, like the, my mental model for building a startup is that essentially your whole goal is not to quit. I saw a really good tweet the other day that was, here's the secret to success. Pick any idea, work on it for 10 years. You, know, you will succeed. Just don't quit. Right. So the way I look at a startup or any sort of company is like, imagine a race or a marathon where if you get to the finish line, you win, you know, and depending on how skilled you are and how much you learn and how good your product is, the finish line might be further away or closer, but all you have to do is keep running and not quit. And I think when you are a solo founder, it's really easy to quit. I mean, every time you run into a hurdle, you're like, I can quit here. You know, I don't know how to get past this. And uh, a lot of people end up quitting way too early just because they, they're not prepared for that. They think that the typical startup stories that you just succeed after Launch, a couple weeks and then you're like, yeah, set. And then it's set from there. And it's like, I've, I've failed enough times to know that that's not the case. Yeah. You, know? you don't win by, by quitting. You don't win by, you know, succeeding overnight. You just, it's a slog. But the content thing is, it's new for you, right? Like you mm-hmm. hadn't done a content thing before. No, never. Right. And so content can feel like a treadmill. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. yeah it totally feels like a treadmill. And I think that's what I was talking about earlier with like having like that kind of rubric that I sent out. Uh, it really helped with that, but it never felt like, as long as I got the content like under control, it never felt like I was on a treadmill. I felt like, okay, that's fine. I just need enough time per, like every week to work on pushing the business forward. So I would have, you know, three or four days a week to work on advertising. And like, that was like a huge hurdle. Like I almost quit when I had no idea how to do ad sales because I'm not a salesperson. I never done any sales before, but after like two months of trying it, I was like, Hey, I'm pretty good at this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like sending cold emails to people and, 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 you know, getting them on the phone and like making friends and like people are buying ads on my website. It's working out. Uh, same with the podcast, you know, like never done it before and ended up going pretty well. But, you know, back to what was hard about it. I think anytime where I let myself dwell, you know, in solitude for way too long, it was when I would think about like, this is hard. Mm. But when I would open up to the community and send an email and saying, hey, here's what I'm working on. Here's what's hard uh, and get support. And it suddenly was, you know, much easier you know? Hmm. And to go back to the marathon analogy. You know, if you're sort of running this marathon by yourself and you look around like, and no one else is running, of course, you're going to quit if it's hard. Right. But if like a whole bunch of other people are running with you, you know, then suddenly you know, you're, you're the social proof of that just helps you continue. So, so by kind of you know, forcing yourself to work in public, you mm-hmm. could stay motivated. Yep, that- exactly. And okay. I think that's a good reason why, you know, I push people to be transparent and come on the site. You have very little to lose. You have a lot to gain because people will, you know, identify with you. You'll make friends. Uh, people like your personal story. They want to know what's going on behind the scenes. And this whole corporate veal of like always saying we and never sharing any numbers. It's just so boring. Like who connects with that? You know, nobody wants to read that kind of stuff. Yeah. Especially when you're on your own and like, yeah. you know, just working at your little tiny bedroom office. Exactly. Yeah, and like unless you live in some sort of tech hub, most people around you like don't know what you're doing. I mean, the internet's pervasive, but like starting an internet business is still a pretty rare thing to do. And so, uh, I think being able to rely on some sort of online community, whether it's on Indie Hackers or another site, like if you can go somewhere and people are also doing what you're doing, and you can tell them what you're up to, and they can give you feedback and and you know really just identify with you, then you're much less likely to quit. How do you maintain a positive community? <sighs> I do very little, actually. I was worried about it because I've been a member of Hacker News for like eight or nine years. I have mixed feelings about it. I love it because uh, the content there is good. People surface really good links. Uh, The discussion is very interesting. There's a lot of smart people in the comments, but it's also super negative. I mean, the the vibe is who can say the most contrarian negative thing first. That's going to get all the upvotes to almost everything that gets submitted. So I was worried about the same thing with ND Hackers, especially since so many people from ND on ND Hackers came from Hacker News. 
But I think it's naturally a little bit self-policing because these are all people who are very serious about building businesses. They're people who've done it before, who've perhaps shared their project uh, on Hacker News or Product Hunt or something and, and gotten negative comments and you know what it feels like. Mm. So they're the last people who, who are going to like bash what other people post. Like they're not going to be negative assholes because they know what it feels like to be on the other side of it. Like they have, you know, if not the emotional intelligence, at least the experience to be like, oh, that sucks. You know, maybe I should be careful and just give positive feedback or like constructive criticism. So mm. I've luckily not had to do very much at all to prevent people from from uh, being negative. And I also think the community, it's not... It's not a link posting community. You don't go on Indie Hackers and just share a link to something and yeah. then say nothing else. You actually have to have a discussion. And so you're actually, you know, from a personal perspective saying, hey, here's what I built and here's what I did. And I think it's a little bit harder to be an asshole when the person who wrote, you know, the post is also the person who submitted it. Yeah, I think that's, um, it dearms people, even on HN. When you get into the thread, I advise people this all the time, just like, Get into the comments. Yeah. Like people respond much more positively when they know you're in there and yeah. you're like sincerely want to engage. It's, like, <laughs> it's weird. They're like, oh, this person made it onto the internet. Uh-huh. Like, what do I do? <laughs> I didn't expect this. Uh, it's like, oh, delete yeah. account. Um, so, so someone asked an interesting question, uh, which is, would you advise starting indie hackers, meaning like a person who's getting started to join an accelerator? Yes, I would. I think, uh, Okay, so I haven't, I've only done YC. I can only really vouch for YC. And so, you know, the boring answer is obviously it depends on the accelerator. Uh, if it's Y Combinator, undoubtedly, yes, the advantages outweigh the disadvantages tenfold. Uh, and it really goes back to like, you know, what is it that kills startups? People quitting. Mm-hmm. You know, what do people very rarely do quit out of an accelerator when they're surrounded <laughs> by other people doing this and investors are pushing you along? So for no other reason than that, I, I think it makes sense to join an accelerator. Uh, but also like, the mentorship that you're going to get, the advice that you're going to get. Uh, I'm really big on founders joining any sort of community. Right? If, if you can find a way to position yourself around other people doing what, you, what you're what you doing, then you're going to increase the chances of your business succeeding. Now, the caveat is, you know, usually accelerators come with like investment terms and investors, and you need to be aware of, you need to go into that with both eyes open. I spent some time doing contract work, and I worked for a lot of like VC-funded startups for a few years, and it was so interesting in talking to like the other employees there, or sometimes the founders there. So they would build like a very good product that maybe twenty, a hundred thousand people were using, people were paying for, and then sometimes just crash and burn because you know the level of success they needed to reach in order to meet their investors' expectations was so high, mm-hmm. right? And so I think if you go into any sort of accelerator, if you accept money from from investors, you need to be aware that. They're not, yes, the money might help you, you know, succeed and grow faster, but at the same time, it's also raising the bar for what, like the minimum bar for success. And if that bar gets raised too high, uh, to a degree that's like unrealistic for your product to hit, if you're building a to do list app and, you know, you need to be a billion dollar violation, like, good luck. There aren't very many billion dollar to do list apps, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think you should be aware of that if, if you're going to join an accelerator. Yes. That is a pro tip from Silicon Valley. It's like, no, just know the terms of the deal. Like, yeah. know the expectations. It's not crazy, no. but I think it's one of those themes that people are really attracted to with indie hackers because it's this unsaid, like, I don't, I don't think VCs are ever trying to be in the gotcha position. Because it doesn't work out for anyone if the company doesn't work. But like when you set your expectations in life to like build this billion dollar company and you raise the money and then you realize that you're making a to-do list app. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to hit that. Yeah. Uh, And I I think like a lot of it is, I mean, like I said earlier, people just like hear one story. You know, they don't, they don't really think about what, what kind of deal they're making or why they're going that route or why they've, you know, why they feel the need to build a billion dollar company. And you know, I agree with you as well. Like the VCs aren't like super nefarious. They're not like, I want to trick everyone. Right. But at the same time, like their incentives are such that, you know, 90% of the time they would rather have a whole bunch of people fail and a few people make it big than to have everybody have kind of a middling result. Right. And so if you're a founder, you have to ask yourself, you know, do I want to have a high risk of failure to, you know, to have that one shot at the top or do I want to, you know, maybe make 10 or $20,000 a month or, you know, a small exit or something and then maybe go for the big shot, which I think is like, probably the more rational decision for most people <laughs> i would imagine so yeah uh all right so there's another question from uh bert um are there other recipes for folks growing a side hustle or you know small business whatever you want to call it in europe compared to the u.s i don't think so uh, the reason is because if you compare you know working on a side hustle uh to you know building more of like a high growth startup mm-hmm. If you're, if you're trying to like hit a billion dollar valuation, what do you care about? You care about, 
really what you need is like a, a like this potent confluence of factors all pushing in the same direction. Like you need the best idea ever. You need the best team ever. You need like a growing market that for some reason has like no real competitors or a bunch of bumbling competitors. You need the best investors, the most money, a little bit of luck. You need everything like to help you. Uh, whereas if you're building a side hustle, if you're building like a smaller business that like still might be life changing, but it's like, you know, doesn't need like all the luck in the world and every factor to line up then really all you need are like just some solid business fundamentals. It's mm-hmm. eminently learnable. And those are going to be the same no matter where you are, whether you're in the U- Europe or the U.S. Like you still need to build something that people want. You still need to have some sort of marketing and distribution strategy. You still need to be able to manage your time and like not run out of money, et cetera. Uh, that doesn't change from place to place. Like the only thing that really changes is you know the number of people in your community who understand what you're doing, your access to capital if you want to raise money, you know legal things and, and, and taxes. But everywhere I've been, I mean, I went to South Africa I talked to some indie hackers there. You're building a business for the internet. You know your customers are everywhere. They're not. It doesn't matter where you live. Yeah. So, are you only interviewing SaaS companies? No, I interview like, the most random variety of companies. I tried early on to have like some sort of rubric, and generally, if somebody emails me and they're like, "Hey, I've got a consultancy," you know, yeah. we're like, I tried it. I say, you know, that's not the best fit because you're really just trading dollars for hours. However, uh, I think SaaS companies are kind of the most interesting. Okay. You know, they they have. They're kind of the dream of people who want passive income and people who want like the freedom that comes with that lifestyle. Uh, but there's lessons to be learned from other companies too. Uh, a good one is Scotch Cheap Flights, who did one of the coolest text interviews on ND Hackers. Uh, it's basically this guy, Scott, who found like super cheap flights for himself. And all of his friends were like, hey, I want cheap flights too. Like, how did you, how did you go round trip to whatever? Dude, like the Venn diagram of like nerds and like airline uh-huh. hacking things <laughs> is so like, you wouldn't believe how many YC applications. Like, we're going to blow your mind with this new mileage plan. People really like saving money on flights. It's, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a little insane. Like people will spend way more money saving money on like time, saving money on flights than they could like earn if they just like worked. Uh, yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Scott like was super good at it. He built this email list of, of you know his friends and colleagues really he was just sending the flight deals that he was finding for himself and it turned from like that tiny side project into like this massive business that's doing like four million dollars a year it's not SaaS at all right it's it's scott and his friends now and the people he's hired scouring the internet and manually that's sending it? people there's no ever. bot there's, there's no there's what? i mean that's that's it and people pay to be part of this mailing list like they pay to be like frequently sent cheap flights so they can go it's totally worth it for them so that's not a SaaS company. One of the coolest interviews ever. And again, it's like all the same business fundamentals. Make something people want, right? He had to find a way to actually advertise his mailing list and get people on it. You know, his marketing site is so, like, it's super slick, super streamlined. Like, the conversion rates are extremely high. Mm-hmm. Uh, super transparent about everything, you know? Like, and it makes his emails fun because it's like, hey, it's Scott here. And yeah, I feel like you're cool. getting an email from just like a person that you know who's trying to help you out. So that is really cool. You spoke of uh, the, the Nomad List guy before. Mm-hmm. Were there other role models for you when you were? Because I I yeah. completely agree that it's so important. Uh, we're having um, Pete Adney, uh, Mr. Money Mustache, yeah. on the podcast. Oh, cool! And he, he's awesome. But I think his his whole deal was so influential with people mm-hmm. in that he's just like software engineer for ten years, saved up like six or seven hundred k. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm out. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah. Good. yeah, like index fund, rely on the income from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he's just another example of just showing people the way. Were there other people that were kind of like showing you the way? Yeah. David Heidemeyer Hansen from, from Basecamp was a big one and Jason Fried. Uh, so I went to startup school in 09 and saw Jason Fried talk. But my favorite talk was DHH's talk the year before. He was just like, it was it's super entertaining. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. But he completely just like dissed everybody there. And he was just like saying common sense things like, you know, you can build a business and telling people things they hadn't heard before. So whenever I felt low, I would I would watch. I've probably seen that talk like 50 times just because it's so inspirational. Uh, watch that one. It's a really good one. Uh, who else? I think, you know, Peter Levels was a big one I mentioned. I didn't have that many influences. I, you know, when I was reading through the Hacker News threads to find examples, I found a lot of really cool examples and people I was like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. what they're doing is awesome. And that inspired me to know that it was possible and keep going. But uh, there isn't any one person. who. What, what about the just the idea of making a content site? Was that like you were reading yeah. some... Because HN is an aggregator, right? Mm-hmm. So was there one site that stood out? I'm like, oh, this is cool. No. I mean, I think... This is a big thing I tell people all the time. Like your product, you shouldn't start by thinking about what your product is going to be and then, and then, you know, making that. What you should start is by figuring out what people want. And then based on what people want, you find the best possible way to, to give them that. Right? Mm. What people wanted in the situation was, was really two things. They wanted to do what I was doing and like have some sort of easy way to research ideas for products. 
And number two, like, I think people just found it entertaining to read these stories, right? And so, like, the conclusion that I came to after seeing that was, like, okay, what people, if I really want to provide what people want, it's going to be some sort of content site, right? Whether it's interviews, whether it's a podcast, whether it's videos, is like, completely up in the air. Like, all of those are valid solutions to that problem. But, like, you know, I for sure need to include some transparent revenue stats, right? I for sure need to get some, like, behind-the-scenes details. Like, there are things that if I really wanted to give people what they wanted were, like, you know absolutely required and so i made sure to just do those things but like i said like i was i'm a developer like starting a content site sounded so <laughs> boring to me and i was so upset that that was the best idea that i came up with but i was also excited about it is uh, the back end of the site user friendly at all are you like publishing from the terminal uh, it's not it's not user friendly at all <laughs> it's like the whole bus factor like you know if you get hit by a bus you know how can can you know your product stand up can someone else come in and with the indie hackers yeah no yeah it's, i'm just i just i look both ways when i cross the street exactly yeah we're wordpress now for yeah. that exact reason <laughs> um all right uh are there common failures with a lot of these um a lot of these indie hacker founders mm-hmm. that they they describe as you know like maybe something in the early days that they struggled with mm-hmm. um that that's common between many of them yeah uh you hear the stats all the time like you know 90 percent of businesses fail yeah um, but i think like the earlier and earlier you go in the funnel the more failures you see like the ultimate like top of the funnel most failures you see is, is people who are interested in starting a business but never get started not for lack of motivation or, or care, but because they don't know what the first step is, right? Or they are grossly misinformed about what the first step is. So they, for example, like I said earlier, spend five or 10 minutes thinking up an idea every now and then. It doesn't come to them and they conclude that they're just not, you know, they just can't do it. Or it's like, actually, you should probably dedicate like three or four days to coming up with an idea because it's this inflection point that's going to control the next few years of your life, you know, uh, and it's not easy to come up with one off the top of your head. So people will get like kind of frustrated by that and stop. Or they won't be able to figure out the legal situation early on, and so they'll stop, which is why Stripe has Atlas, for example, to help people out with that and make it super easy. Um, you know, not not having traction in the early days, super frustrating to people, and they quit. So it, consistently, I mean, I, I sound like a broken record here, but it's like, you know, the more times I say it, hopefully the more it will sink in. People quit way too early, <laughs> way before yeah, they should yeah. quit. You know, like your idea. Some people think their ideas are terrible. I'm like, like, guys, ah, my idea was so flawed. And they'll tell me their idea. I'm like, that's a great idea. You just have to actually execute on it. So hmm. uh, I think that hurts. The other thing is uh, I think people don't read enough. And I, I get the opposite of this often. I hear people say, oh, stop reading and just start doing. That's true. But I think if you're the kind of person who is going to have uh, the determination and the grit to like actually start a successful successful startup, then you're probably not going to like quit because you spent too much time reading up front. Like that's not going to be what stops you for that type of person. Uh, but the benefits from reading are like massive because starting a startup is not intuitive. Mm-hmm. If it was intuitive, then there wouldn't be so many guides and books to doing <laughs> it, and everything you did that felt right would just work. Yeah. Right. But anytime you see an industry that's populated with intelligent people, and yet most of them are still failing, it's probably worth taking a step like a step back to say like. There's something going on here that people don't, you know, realize, and I should read and learn from other people's mistakes instead of repeating their mistakes uh, and learning from my own horrible experiences. <laughs> and that's not to say that experience I'm is really not a good, good teacher. Yeah. Uh, so, what do you tell someone when they're like, "Okay, I'm in. Like, I'm uh-huh. subscribed to your like workout plan. I'm going to spend four days and get my idea." Mm-hmm. What do you tell them to read? I tell them to read the Indie Hackers interviews, which are just a better version of the same HN posts that I was reading. Uh, I tell them to post on the forum, share what you're doing, right? Don't go into a black hole and then, you know, emerge two months later and be like, I never did find an idea. Like, why don't you just keep a list of what you were saying coming up with and post them on the forum and people are happy to tell you what they think, what you should do next, et cetera. And I think there's this kind of overwhelming assumption that we're just alone and that you can't share because there's not that many communities where people do this. I mean, I get it. It's not a common thing. People just aren't used to it. Uh, So I'm trying to reverse that. Someone on the Indie Hackers Forum said earlier uh, that they would like it if I made the form a little bit more structured and created a specific way to ask for feedback because he felt spammy. He's like, oh, I don't, I don't like spamming people and asking. Like, that's the entire point of this form is for you to ask these questions and it feels spammy. So yeah. uh, I think I've underestimated a little bit how much it can be scary or feel like not just not normal to ask people for like transparent advice on what's going on. But that's my advice to people. You know, As long as you have mentors and, and people who know what they're talking about who can help you out, and as long as you don't quit, you know, then like even if you do things wrong, you're going to get some good advice and you'll be able to correct. Hmm. Okay. Were there any books that guided you? 
I love like all of the most popular startup books. Oh, the Lean Startup right. is great uh, yeah. by Eric Ries. I like uh, Crossing the Chasm. It's a little bit older. It was like the, kind of the Lean Startup of the '90s, I think, but uh, still great advice there. And then talks about you know the early adopters and all the way through like the mainstream and late adopters and the difference between appealing to those different segments, uh, which I think is extremely important for people to know. I like Peter Thiel's Zero to One. Uh, I think the thing that, that trips a lot of people up while I'm talking about these books is that not every book is going to tell you who it's written for. Like if you read Zero to One, that book is written for like high growth startups. It's got a lot of advice in there that's terrible if you're trying to <laughs> if you're trying to to bootstrap your way to success. And so people will come in and they'll say, you know, like right. I did this thing and it's not working. Why isn't it working? Like because that's advice that's like does not apply to you. Uh, but I think if you're careful and you, and you understand, okay, who was this written for and what you know nuggets can I take away? Then uh, it, almost all of these books have some some nugget of advice that's useful. Uh, Hooked by Nir Eyal, really cool book. Talks all about the psychology of habit forming products and like what people what gets people coming back. Why do we mm. form habits, etc. Totally unaware of that until I had him on my podcast and I read the book. And Ryan Hoover helped like edit it as oh, well. Cool. Uh, it's probably why Product Hunt is so addictive. Yeah. But, <laughs> but a really cool book. Definitely worth a read for everybody. Uh, and also just books outside of the startup echo chamber. I have so many people who, who say, you know, Corlin, I've got this idea for a, you know, an app that will let you like place an order at your local coffee shop before you get there. And it's like, I hear this idea like seven times a week. And the reason is because everybody's reading the exact same books and the exact same blog posts. And living in the exact same place. And so if you have all the same inputs, you're going to have like the same ideas as everybody else. Totally. So like if you really want to come up with something creative, like not only should you invest the time to, to think about it, but like travel, you know, go visit a different culture, read some fiction or sci-fi or something like to get your creative juices flowing. Don't only read uh, startup books. Yeah. I think you have to have an opinion like <laughs> outside of the norm. <laughs> you do. Because it's true. Like, yeah, just hang out here long enough and it's the same ideas. Exactly. Circulate. Yeah. Um, do any of the, uh, so this is a Cameron Reynoldson. Um, how often do you see indie hacker projects transition from lifestyle businesses to startups or do they ever? Yeah, all the time. I mean, uh, Scotch cheap flights, great example. Totally. Well, okay. So it depends on your definition of, of lifestyle business. If you mean, uh, lifestyle business is any business that makes money and a startup is someone who's raised a lot of money from venture capitalist. I actually don't see that very often. Very rarely does somebody, who is killing it and making millions of dollars decide that they're going to raise a ton of capital. Mm. And I think most of those cases are like pretty famous. Mm -hmm. uh, but I see the opposite actually often, which is companies will raise one round and then they won't raise any more money. And they're like, yeah, we're killing it. We don't need to raise any more money. We understand like what level our investors expect us to get to. We're comfortable with that. Yeah. Zapier is a good example. Yeah, yeah. Like I had Wade on the podcast. He, They're doing extremely well. He doesn't need to raise any money. Uh, Kevin Hale and Wufu did the same thing back in the day. Uh, and I also see a lot of like side projects that start off as, you know, I just want to supplement my income and make a few thousand bucks a month that turn into, you know, I'm quitting my job. This is it full time. Uh, this guy, Mike Parham, at, he created an app called Sidekick. It's basically like a background job processor for developers so that they can run tasks in the background on their server and make their websites faster. He was doing it on the side of his business. Then he was kind of mixing it with his business. And then he quit his job and was like, I'm not going to work my full-time job anymore. This is like taking off, right? And that's kind of the dream because now he's got the freedom to work on whatever he wants from wherever he wants for whatever hours he wants. Mm -hmm. And like there's no upside on his income. He's making something like a million something dollars a year as a solo developer just doing what he likes. There you go. So yeah. not not a typical story. Like not everybody makes a million dollars a year. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> you know, that definitely went from like side project and hobby into like more than a full-time career. But that's a real struggle. Like I know a bunch of software developers that have their like, you know, cushy internet job mm -hmm. and have a side thing. And they, they struggle to figure out like at what point do you really switch? And yeah. like... Is that a an, is there like an advice section in the forum that people like struggle with this question, <laughs> or is this actually more rare? Yeah, I, I know it's it's very common. And indie hackers, as it exists right now, is not very prescriptive. Like it's not organized into an answer to every specific question you might have. It's more free flowing. And so every now and then, a topic might pop up about that, and people will get all sorts of good responses. Uh, but my personal advice would be, uh, it really depends on the level of risk that you want, and it's harder once you're a developer or even a non-developer in some job where it's cushy and you're making money. Like when I first moved out here, I was like the stereotypical, like, you know, 22 year old eating ramen noodles. Like I didn't care what kind of apartment I lived in. Yeah. And then I started shopping at Whole Foods and, you know, and moving into better apartments. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's like, okay, I can't, I can't quit my job or, you know, do something unless I have a really good idea that's really working out. And I, under, I empathize with people who are in that situation. Uh, 
I really think that you should have some form of product market fit. Like you should be confident that your product can work, right? If you've launched a side project and there's no one's using it yet and you're just excited to code on it, mm-hmm. that's probably premature for you to leave your job, right? Like every software engineer really likes coding their own thing. Like it's fun. But uh, you really need to get to the point where you, you found a way that to get people to your app. Mm-hmm. Or you found a way that you know to actually grow your revenue and you can say, okay, at this rate it's a matter of time. You know, I think that's helpful. And I realize that it's kind of intimidating if you're not if you're if you're not a person who would describe yourself as like a business person, right? If you're like, I write code, I have no idea what like what it means to do business. Well, like, it's really there's no such thing, right? It's just a collection of individual tasks, like finding people to come to your app, right? Which is if you read enough examples, like you'll start to see the patterns, you'll start to see what options are available to you. Uh, and so I would encourage people not to be worried that they don't have like experience here. Mm-hmm. Just make sure to read and learn from what other people are doing. Make sure that you are persistent and you don't quit at the first sign of distress. And then, you know, if, if things start working, it'll be pretty obvious. Right? With Mike Param, it was like, hey, I'm making 50K a year from my app, you know, 100K a year now. Wow, it's only been two months. Or, you know, with Scott, with Scott Cheap Flights, it's like, you know, suddenly I'm making like thousands of dollars. I can hire somebody. You know, yeah. why do I need to work my job? Yeah. Also, like, the if you're a talented developer, the downside's pretty low, right? right. You know, ideally it makes enough money to sustain you. Mm-hmm. You spend six months on it, and if it doesn't work out, you can get another job. Exactly. Like, hmm. I mean, that's what I did. I was contracting. Uh, I quit, and I had enough savings to live for like a year or two in San Francisco, which could have got me much further in any other city. Like, I do not recommend trying to bootstrap in San Francisco, paying ridiculous rent here. Uh, but ultimately, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm confident that if things don't go well, like, I'll have a backup plan. It's, yeah. it's much harder if you're in a different situation. Yeah, for sure. Um, how are things going now that you're at Stripe? Awesome. Uh, They're not watching. <laughs> <laughs> Stripe is a great company. It's it's so funny because uh, the acquisition happened completely out of the blue. Yeah. People ask me, like, oh, how did you set up the acquisition, blah, blah, blah. I'm like... I started a blog. You know, no one starts a blog to, uh, to, to get acquired, you know, like the email, com- the email came completely out of the blue from Patrick. But, uh, it's really the perfect union. Like, I think some people, uh, you know, every now and then will be skeptical, especially in Hacker News about any sort of acquisition. Like, you know, what's the real play here? Uh, I think it was obviously good for me. It's good for Stripe and it's good for the indie hackers community for indie hackers to be under Stripe. Yeah. Specifically, if you look at like Stripe's goals and incentives here, I mean, Patrick Collison came in on the Hacker News thread that announced the acquisition and, and made the top comment where he just said flat out, here's why we were acquiring indie hackers. And it was super straightforward, which is Stripe does better if more people are starting companies and those companies are more successful. Indie hackers' mission is to help more people start companies and be more successful. Mm. There's no, you know, there's no man behind the curtain there. There's no sort of secret <laughs> thing going on, yeah. you know. Uh, and also like just examining like a world, you know, indie hackers without Stripe versus indie hackers at Stripe. So what I was doing you know, back in February and March is spending an inordinate amount of my time finding advertisers, putting ads in my newsletter, putting ads on the website, putting ads on the forum. Uh, ads, you know, as much as they might fund a site, they don't make a site web, like, they don't make it better. No one is happy <laughs> to get a newsletter that's got ads in it. It doesn't help anyone, right? It didn't help me uh, to do anything other than pick up the ability to do like well, some pay sales. rent. Yeah, and pay rent, right? But like ultimately, at Stripe, I've got a salary. Uh, I don't have to worry about paying rent. You know, I'm not like, Worried that indie hackers is going to go under. They're they're not going to shut the website down. Like, they did not buy it to shut it down. They did not buy it for it to become some super profitable thing in the next like six months or anything. Mm-hmm. So the long term is pretty much set. Uh, and now I can just focus 100% on my original mission, which is just helping people start companies and, and showing that there's another way to do it. That's not you know the story that we've all heard. Mm-hmm. So Stripe's been super fun. I'm, they're really hands off. I think I've met with Patrick like three times since I've joined in like the last six months. And he's mm-hmm. a super smart guy. Like we just brainstorm together and think about how to make the site impactful. So uh, it's really the perfect acquire. And like the incentives are aligned perfectly. Like there's nothing that I want to do that they don't also want to do. That's great. Do you have any um, side projects going on right now? No. <laughs> okay. If you could start any side projects, uh, which one would you be jumping on? What would on? I start? It's so funny. Tell me it's going to be a coin. It needs to be. A- <laughs> it would be an ICO. The Indie Hackers ICO. Really. <laughs> I don't know, actually. You know what? I think I would, I would, my side project would be, I would follow the same formula I followed last time. I need to spend four days, get my brand into that mode where it's actually good at this. It's like riding a bicycle. If you haven't ridden a while and you're going to suck, but after you pedal for a while, you get good. You know, coming up with an idea, you need to take the time to do it. Uh, that being said, I think if you run a business for a while, you, you start to see, 
like opportunities for things where if that existed, you would pay for it for sure. You know, like I'm trying to manage my Twitter account. It's just a hassle to do that and also do all the other things. Like I really want like better tools for social media. A lot of tools for social media already exist and a lot of them are wildly popular mm-hmm. like in, in profitable. Uh, so I've got some ideas in that area and, and it's hard to say, but I think uh, maybe the day will come where I work on a side project on the side of indie hackers. We'll see. I have way too much to do now. Yeah. And <laughs> a lot of the stuff that I'm doing for indie hackers like is almost side project ish. You know, like my life hasn't changed very much at all. I mean, I'm still working at home on indie hackers. Kind I'm still working on my own schedule. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's not, it's not too different. Cool. All right. I don't have any more questions. Cool. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, the transcript and video are at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you'd like to apply to the winter 2018 batch, that is at ycombinator.com slash apply.